Standard Issue for all women. Hi, and welcome to episode 30 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm not Mickey Noonan, as you may well have guessed. That's because this week, what with it containing International Women's Day and all, we've done something a bit different. And by different, I mean we've recorded four, count them, four extra interviews with brilliant women, including Laura Bates and Dr Jill Sutherland. We've literally trekked through actual snow to get some of these, but it was worth it. I spent a whole lot of time this week just staring in awe and occasionally saying, wow. And if that isn't the point of International Women's Day, I don't know what it is. More about how you can listen to those special podcasts from Jen at the end of this podcast. What that does mean is that we've no Bush Telegraph for you this week. But just to be clear, we are still abundant O-views on almost everything, in case you were wondering or worried. And we still have a fit to bursting podcast for you today. First up, as British Science Week will soon be upon us, we speak to Anjali Ramachandram from the Nevertheless podcast about the importance of getting young girls into STEM. Lucy Nicholl tells us about her new book, A Series of Unfortunate Stereotypes, which first started as a column for Standard Issue and charts the stigmas surrounding mental health. She's joined by Joe Neary, who illustrates the book and reads some extracts for us. Mickey talks to playwright and actor Rana Morthy about what the sari means to her and why she's writing a trilogy of plays dedicated to it. R. Jen Offord is all about the women's sport in Jenny Off the Blocks, as is her want. And I do Disney's Moana. Liberace Crabs, here we come. We are joined in the studio by Anjali Ramachandran from the Nevertheless podcast, who has come in to talk to us on our podcast exchange. I was going to say what it's about, but in fact, I'm going to ask you, Anjali, can you tell us what your podcast is all about, please? If you can't, it's going to be really awkward. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So Nevertheless is a podcast supported by Pearson Education that's about the women changing teaching and learning through technology. So it's all about women uh, engineers, software uh, developers, academics, researchers, entrepreneurs, people who have been revolutionizing the way kids and adults and anyone learns really and you know really is making and have made in the past as well a really big difference to to all our lives without us really knowing it and so you host the podcast with Lee Alexander. Um, she's actually the main host. I just step in when needed. I'm the executive producer on it. Oh. Um, and Lee's the, Lee's the main host. And she's a journalist and an author and a video games expert. She oh. writes on that quite a bit as well. The podcast is, is I think, breaking new ground for the education field or ed tech as it's called mm-hmm. educational technology because it's not it's we hope it's not dry and boring and that, I guess that's the point we don't want it to be academic and really something that you think people will be forced to listen to by their teachers we want it to be quite populist mm-hmm. and generalist um, and that's the that's the tone we're going for you're trying to engage a lot of young women into what the podcast is about yes definitely I mean a big reason for us doing this and for Pearson themselves getting interested in the topic is the fact that there aren't enough girls and women in the STEM subjects so science technology engineering and math and there are a lot of reasons for that historically well women were just never seen as as the the gender that did numbers properly but I think I wanted to very briefly tell the story of uh, Dame Stephanie Shirley, uh, who's also Dame Steve Shirley, who is a 
really brilliant computer programmer who in the 1950s started sending her CV out for jobs and she didn't get any callbacks. And then she spoke to her husband who said, why don't you try changing your name on the CV from Stephanie to Steve? And lo and behold, she got loads of <laughs> people calling her back. And uh, later on, when she had a baby, she just realized that, you know, none of these companies uh, wanted her. Or they just didn't have the work environment that just suited her. And so she set up a company of her own and hired a lot of women uh, programmers to, to do the work that she needed to do. They're the ones who built the, the Concord's black box, actually. It's pretty brilliant. They've done oh, wow. some amazing work. Yeah. And she got to the point where she was hiring so many women, only like hundreds of women and only three men. And then the, the law came in and said, you know, that's not that's not... <laughs> That's actually not fair for men. Can you believe it? Uh oh, uh, we're in trouble, guys. Yeah. Is it reverse sexism? No, no, it's not because that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What is your background? I don't come from a typical STEM background, um, and I think that's that's actually a good thing. So I did sociology at university and studied social policy. I worked with development organisations and research. Then went to the corporate side, and for the last sort of eight nine years, I've been working with digital media, which is where my current uh, you know, role and interests come from. And I'm also the co-founder of a global network for women in technology called Ada's List, which is named after Ada Lovelace, first female computer programmer, also happens to be Lord Byron's daughter. But I think it's so amazing that she in her own right has done so many amazing things. And uh, we're over 5,000 members at the moment globally and growing all the time. And we, one of the reasons we exist is to give women the support that they need as a community to ask those questions that they can't ask their colleagues because maybe most of them are men so to sort of uh, make them aware of the really amazing jobs that exist for women in tech so that they can you know get to the next stage in their career and ideally get to the leadership level or you know board level uh, where there are just not enough women at the moment and start changing policy from within but with, with education obviously which is what your podcast yes. about i mean yes. the key is to, to get them young isn't yes. it to get, get girls interested Yes, and there are. I think there are loads of organisations doing brilliant work in that right now. STEMETS is one of them, because if you don't get girls interested uh, young enough, you know, just at that age, sort of between seven and eleven, I want to say, where they are making all these important decisions about their lives without them really knowing it. In many ways, it's the influence of people who are around them that really counts. And most of the time, they don't see women in uh, roles in tech that they might later want to aspire to I think that's a big part of the problem you know if you can't see it you can't be it mm. and so what nevertheless wants to do is shine light on the amazing women doing really brilliant work in this field in, in education Bethany Kobe for example is one she uh, has co-founded a company called Technology Will Save Us and it, it basically creates and builds all these little devices that children can use to program themselves and get interested in technology. And uh, they're used in schools and they, you know, they're sold, you know, in places like the, like museums, for example, they, they're really, really working with a lot of places at the moment. And uh, that's just one example of an entrepreneur that's really changing tech. Tell us about okay. the nun. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Love a nun story. Yeah. I wish I could ask that question to everybody who came in and they all start. had a story. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we should just start putting it in there. Yeah. <laughs> See if they have anything. Yeah. Just on the off chance. <laughs> in the off chance. So, yeah. So one of the, the, the amazing females that uh, we chanced upon during you know, research for this program for Nevertheless is the story of Sister Mary Kenneth Keller. And Sister Mary Kenneth Keller was a Roman Catholic nun and an educator who was one of the team 
that worked on BASIC, which is uh, Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code, one of the earliest computing uh, languages. In fact, Dartmouth College in the US actually changed their all-male policy for their computer research center just so she could work there. And uh, she went on to be one of the first people to get a PhD in computer science and founded the computer science program, well, department at Clark College in Iowa in the US. She was one of the first advocates for women in computing and believed that, uh, you know, it wasn't enough for computer science to be just for people who knew the the subject. It needed to be democratic. Is it is a company called Nuntech? No, oh, oh no, no, no. It's, it's not. There is no company called Nuntech. I wish there was. Yeah. It's such a cool we could name. start one. We yeah. could start one. I don't think it would be. It would uh, hold up either side of the bargain <laughs> that that name suggests. But we'd probably have to find a nun and indeed some, some knowledge. Tech, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can iron out the details later. Oh, Come on, I just need you on board with this. Trademark it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the amazing thing in the last few years. There's been an absolute explosion in a good way of lots of advocacy groups and support groups for girls and women who want to get into coding. So there is Girl Develop It. There's Women Who Code who have global chapters. There's Geek Girl Meetup who have global chapters. There's STEMETS in the UK which focus specifically on school-going girls. There's so many, actually. There's There was hundreds at last count. I mean, in, the, in London alone, I counted, what, 50 or 60 just a couple of years ago, and that's probably much more now. Wow. Um, and, and it's amazing. I think it's, it's really, really inspiring to see all these different initiatives initiatives that are going into getting girls interested in coding. I want to talk about actually a group called, well, a, a program called Erase All Kittens. It's a, it's a game. What? Yeah. The kittens are well nice. Yeah, they're very nice, but it's a fun game. It's, All right. It's, it's <laughs> cute I've been told. <laughs> cute kittens in them. Uh, and it's, it essentially is to help girls. Well, it's for kids, but... Coincidentally, apparently, the vast majority. I think you play it. You sound like you play it a lot. <laughs> the majority of uh, kids who play it happen to be girls, and it's for I think eight to thirteen year olds to to get into coding, and they don't realize they're coding when they're playing this game. And so, as they go along, you know, raising all kittens, as the name as the name so says, <laughs> they they get interested in coding, and I think that's the kind of thing we want. Uh, so it's run by uh, a couple of really interesting women. D. Segal is one of them, uh, and uh, she's one of the the women we've featured on our podcast Shwetal Shah is their marketing in charge and she's she's another one as well and Leonie Vandalin is the, the third part of that uh, all women's group that founded this program what so, have they got against kittens yeah. well, you need to play the game to find out oh. <laughs> are you seeing more younger women getting involved now is it more normalised for younger girls or young women to get into these industries or, or to have an interest in them I guess I think, I mean, that's the aspiration, that's the goal, because I was looking at the stats this morning, actually, and it's only something like 25% of the total number of people who study computer science degrees, engineering and software that are girls or, you know, women. The numbers have been going up slowly, but not enough. So we, there's a huge job still to get enough girls at school age interested in the subject, you know, encourage them to get into university and then encourage them to, to get jobs in the industry. Because another big problem is that even if women get into the industry, they are often uh, not supported enough to, mm. to want to stay or they're actually in many cases harassed out of it because, wow. uh, you know, the whole Silicon Valley bro culture, uh-huh. as it's called, mostly men, young white men uh, with hoodies. That's the that's the generic <laughs> image. Sitting on beanbags. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're drinking beer, 
playing ping pong, the standard stereotypes. The encouraging thing is that there are a lot more companies now who realize the importance of diversity and inclusion mm. and that if they want the best talent, uh, they're going to ha- have to do things that make the best talent want to stay. And that's women very, very often. And different uh, perspectives. Yes. They're helpful. Yeah. Helpful and more more financially successful. Yeah, that's the thing. There's a load of research by Harvard uh-huh. and McKinsey and stuff that just goes to show that you know the more diverse your teams are, the more successful they are. Oh, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you can't argue with the numbers as well. You know, they're all trying to sell things ultimately, aren't they? And if they want to tap into those different markets, they have to understand them. And they're only really going to do that by having those different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, hopefully it will become sort of it becomes circular in that if you look at something like gaming, mm. which is predominantly people think it's predominantly played by men but it's actually just that women do different things mm. like for example women tend to play games on their phones yeah whereas men tend to play them on you know killy games yeah killy games which feels like something that won't get girls interested but if girls get into it then they might make games that are less yeah. sexist that will drive less girls like, like yeah, encourage absolutely. more girls in and then mm. it will become a I love sort shooting of, zombie games they're great just, I remember playing obviously growing up with two older brothers played probably more computer games than some other younger girls would have done and I just remember like all of the there'd be like maybe one female character maybe and would she two. be wearing a bikini she'd always have massive well, tits um, yeah. So yeah. Like, and then she'd get her head cut off at the end yeah. by someone um, so yeah those I'm, are the stereotypes we're yeah. trying to challenge well there you go we had nanochemist Dr Suze Kundu come in and she talked to us about the situation within STEM and getting women into STEM. And I think the stat she gave us that only 9% of employees in the engineering community are women. Yeah. 9%. Yeah. That's not 50, is it? That's no, 9%. That's the thing. That's It's really, really shocking when you get into the numbers. Um, and there's a huge need for for all the programs that exist at the moment because we need to shift those numbers up. And it goes back to, you know, the kinds of uh, companies that are built. So, again, 9% is actually the the number of well, female-founded startups that get funding. Most of the startups that get funding are male because the people who invest are male. And so they, it's, there's this whole, there's this bias towards funding and people who look like you. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, if it's mostly male investors, you know, you're going to get mostly male companies funded. And so we need more women becoming investors as well. That's the other angle. Is it mostly white investors as well? Does that yeah, have a... Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, in the last year, there's there's been a couple of uh, accelerators, incubators, which are basically spaces where startups can go to get the support they need to grow that are that focus on uh, minority founders, which I think is, is vastly needed. Who is your STEM tech hero? I'm inclined to say Ada Lovelace because, because she she really was one of the pioneers. I mean, there are, there are so many. There are so many. Yeah, Ada Lovelace is, is one of them, I think, They're up there. That's who people should be Googling at the end of this. If yeah. They're yeah. Google it, guys. Yeah. Google. She has a day, doesn't she, Ada Lovelace? She does, yeah, day. Yeah. She does indeed. And uh, in fact, never, nevertheless, you must listen to Nevertheless because we Please cover... Do, guys. We, in every episode, we cover at least, you know, five or six women that, you know, need to be known better and uh, that's the aim of it apart from starting Nuntech, which i'm keen to do um <laughs> is there anything that people outside of the industries can do to help apart from raise awareness and be more balanced and fair 
with how you treat girls and boys, I would say, because a lot of it starts young. You know, there's this unconscious bias where it's not seen as feminine for girls to, you know, play shooting games, for example, or whatever. But all that kind of conditioning starts young. And then it goes on to the next level, which is when girls, you know, between as they get into their early teens, they start having peer pressure, like a lot of peer pressure. And if it's not cool to be seen, you know, playing, you know, the video games and, you know, coding, then a lot of girls just don't want to get into it because none of the, the girls around them are. So I think it's important to encourage girls into it at home. So whether that's your niece or your cousin or your daughter or whoever. What's not cool about building a fucking website? Other things that people can do are, you know, stand up and ask if you see things in your companies that are just not fair. Uh, things like, for example, are your hiring teams shortlisting at the very least women and, and people of color for jobs? For example, if you have all things being equal, you have an all white team or an all male team and you have two candidates who are equal on every measure, why would you not take the woman or the person of color to diversify your, your mm. entire um, outlook and representation? Policy level, if you run a company, there are loads of things you can do. What are you doing to make your company more friendly to people from different backgrounds? What are you doing to support women and people of color to make them feel welcome? How flexible are your work environments? Because not everyone needs to needs to sit at a desk 95, nor do they want to. Uh, millennials are, are an excellent example. I mean, they they don't want to be locked to a desk. They've got a hundred different things they can do. Um, side They've got to get somewhere like, on that clown bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For one. Yeah. Uh, but side hustles are a big thing now. People, you know, have these side passion projects that suddenly become their careers at some point and they want to experiment with that uh, while working for you maybe and that's not such a bad thing because if they have skills that you can use you know use them let them learn and then go off and do brilliant things i think it's a good thing for you to be a part of that journey for them learning is fun guys i bloody love it yeah fungicational yeah yeah. So where can I find your fungicational <laughs> podcast? <laughs> on uh, at neverthelesspodcast.com. And okay. we're on iTunes, we're on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher, we're on all the all the commonly used uh, podcast pa- platforms. But uh, neverthelesspodcast.com has all the information you need about, well, it's got the transcripts, it's mm. got quotes, it's got links that you can go off where you can look at, you know, go, e- examine these people further, learn more about these amazing women that we feature as well. Great. Excellent. That was great. Thanks so Thank much. You very Thank much. you. My name's Lucy Nicholl, and I'm going to have a natter with you today about my new book, A Series of Unfortunate Stereotypes. Also, in between my what might be occasionally monotonous tones, you'll hear the altogether more wonderful voice of Joe Neary. Joe is a seasoned standard issue illustrator, writer. She's a stand-up comedian, actor, and importantly, she's my lovely book illustrator. As a huge oversharer of my deepest, darkest and often most cringeworthy feelings, you may have read my Standard Issue column back in the old online magazine days. The first time I wrote for Standard Issue, after my lovely editor Sam invited me to submit a piece on mental health, I called it a series of unfortunate stereotypes, the same name as said new book. And that's what my writing is all about, naming and shaming mental health stigmas. You see, I live with anxiety, and I have done for years, 
ever since I was a spotty teenager who struggled to inhale cigarettes but was still convinced I might spontaneously combust from them at any given moment. But the thing with anxiety is that we all get it and it can really rile you when people say, but what on earth have you got to be anxious about? Because the difference between an anxiety disorder and everyday anxiety is that with a disorder, it's just not relative to the situation. It can come after you at any moment. It can last for years and years. And that's why I wanted to write on stigma. But then there's the issue of self-stigma too, as my medical notes evidence with comments like self-confessed hypochondriac. I was always apologetic for wasting people's time. But I did have an illness and I shouldn't apologise and neither should anyone else. And so my book was born with a purpose, to kick stigma's butt. Because let's face it, being ashamed or shaming others is quite simply not a good look for society. Apologies if I offend anyone here, but I don't actually believe stigmata exists. I know there are drawings of it in the Bible and everything, but I'm not sure anyone has ever been treated for actual stigmata of the biblical type. It is not a contributing factor to the NHS crisis, as far as I'm aware. I know I'm treading a precarious path here, especially given the recent allegations about Stephen Fry's apparent illegal blasphemy. Stephen Fry went onto TV in 2015 and asked, Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Whoopsie-daisy, Mr Fry. How very dare you? But there, I've said it. I don't believe in stigmata. Not now, anyway. Back in the 90s, however, American movie star Patricia Arquette made me believe otherwise, albeit briefly. I've always been drawn to horror movies. I don't know why, given that I'm an absolute wuss who still gets frightened watching Ghostbusters. Remember the old lady in the library? You can't argue with that. Anyway, Stigmata, with Patricia Arquette, was one movie that I enjoyed in the late 90s. I say enjoyed, I watched it and, without letting on to my then-boyfriend, who had his feet up on the sofa, completely unaware, I discreetly checked my hands and feet for bloody holes. An all-too-familiar feeling of dread hit me. Hidden by the side of the armchair, my fingertips secretly wandered over the centre of my palms. I expected my fingertips to disappear into a bloody void. They didn't, of course. I checked my feet. They were safely snuggled up in my stripy slipper socks. My blood was not seeping through. How could I be sure, though, that I wasn't bleeding underneath the fabric? These were high-quality socks. How could I check my feet without my boyfriend seeing me and realising that his girlfriend was completely crazy, or worse still, possessed? It's amazing how you can convince yourself that your hand aches just by thinking about it. Nothing came of it that night, but it didn't stop me days and even weeks later typing stigmata into Google and hitting the search button. Oh. My. God stigmata phenomena had indeed been reported. That was no movie. That was on the internet. It must be true, I thought. After all, the internet was my new go-to place for facts, wasn't it? I can't pretend, even today, that I'm not slightly nervous writing about this topic in case the spiritual world picks up on it and inflicts stigmata as a punishment for committing blasphemy or being an unbeliever. But no, hang on just a moment. That won't happen. It's all me, after all. The ache I felt in my hands was born of my own anxious brain and Patricia Arquette's scary movie scenes. Let's look at it in the cold light of day. What really is stigmata? Stigmata. Awful bloody marks that Jesus found in his hands and feet after being nailed to the cross. A punishment. Stigma. Simply a mark of disgrace. Thinking I could have stigmata left a mark of disgrace. 
a mark I put there myself for feeling so embarrassed about my anxious thoughts. Was I going mad? I must have been. I was either crazy or possessed. I didn't much fancy either. So the topic of stigma got me thinking about how mental health stereotypes have changed over the years. For movies such as Fatal Attraction and Single White Female in the 80s and 90s, where characters with a personality disorder were portrayed as bunny boilers and puppy killers who enjoyed sticking their stiletto heels in people's eyes, to media headlines about stars like Amy Winehouse shaming her for her drunken antics and expecting tip-top performances with zero compassion for her struggling health. But even I have to admit that I used stigma as a child. I used to think I lived near a, a nuthouse and I was guilty of calling people crazy. So I was an ignorant little shit at one point. However, we shouldn't hate ourselves for these mistakes, but we should definitely try to learn and move on from them. Charlie the Cat was the poster boy Moggy for Stranger Danger in the 80s, thanks to the public information film of the same name. He and his young owner were later sampled on the prodigy's big hit again of the same name. Rave culture reminded us of the things we should be frightened of. Charlie says to always tell your mummy before you go off somewhere after all. There's no wonder my generation is fucked up and cynical. We were always being made to be frightened of life back then. As a child, it's perfectly normal to be frightened of stuff. Whether it's monsters, stranger danger or car washes. The 80s seemed to dish out a lot of fear. And that fear, coupled with e-numbers and E.T. biscuits and God knows what investor ready meals, combined to create a rather unhealthy mind and body. It wasn't just me, though. Everyone was scared of monsters and strangers. That is absolutely normal. Normal life. But it's when these monsters morph into other things and you carry them into adult life that it becomes a bit of an issue. Health anxiety became my monster. I was definitely a nervous child, incredibly shy and awkward and highly strung, excitable and panicky. In fact, my good friend Tom still sees me as a highly excitable human being. He describes me as a spaniel, one full fat coke away from licking someone, apparently. Some of this was relative. Some was just being a child. But some of the fears I had as a youngster developed into an anxiety disorder. The things I was frightened of in the 1980s include car washes, wasps, pylons, other people, beards, volcanoes. I've recently come to realise that I've been anxious for most of my life, at least since I was a painfully shy toddler in Junior Levi's, cool parents, and Clark's shoes, okay, sporadically cool parents. And just like with my anxiety today, the things I was frightened of were never actually real. I mean, of course a car wash is real, but I didn't know it was a car wash. I thought it was a big scary monster machine. A big, loud, whirring, growling machine that would move closer and closer until it completely surrounded our Sirocco, blacking out the sky with its menacing bristles that would reach out to grab me and pull me into the depths of hell. What if it broke through the windscreen? What if it took the roof off? It thump, thump, thumped on the roof of the car like villain repeatedly smacking someone over the head. The scary, bristly arms flopped down limply and all would be quiet again. But that wasn't the end of it. A big buzzing vacuum would appear from the sky and suck all the tiny water droplets on the windows to the front of the car. They'd move awkwardly as if trying to resist the force until finally submitting and disappearing from view. Silence. My dad would turn the car ignition, Bruce Springsteen's ragged vocals blasting out of the tape deck once more. We'd roll out of the monster cage slowly and I'd breathe a sigh of relief. Or throw up. That often happened in cars too. These things were scary to children, weren't they? 
I don't think I was unique. I just think that I carried these kinds of fears into my adult life. As a child, you can't rationalise with yourself that a car wash isn't a monster. As an adult, you really should be able to. But I can't. I can't convince myself that a spot is not cancer or a bruise is not meningitis. Monsters morph into many different things as you grow up. So it's absolutely normal to be anxious or feel down or perhaps like a neat and tidy home or become obsessed over something that you're passionate about. But when somebody talks of having a disorder, like OCD, for example, they are not referring to being a bit like Monica from Friends. When somebody has a full-blown panic attack in the street, like I have done, they are not crazy and unhinged. And this is why I wrote the book. I wanted to address all this stigma. It's as outdated as the puffball skirt and it needs to be locked firmly in history. But there's still more to do. So if you fancy having a read, check out a series of unfortunate stereotypes by me, Lucy Nicholl, published by mental health publisher Trigger Press. You can grab it directly from the Trigger Press website, Waterstones or Amazon. And do let me know what you think. Hello, I'm with Ronnie Murthy at Alan Carr's House of Alan. Car- no, it's not Alan Carr's House of Sorries. That would be very different. At Alanka House of Sorry in Manchester. Hi, Ronnie. Hi. Hi. This is one of the last remaining traditional sorry shops in the UK, right? Absolutely. Which is why I chose it for the show. This is part of my sorry trilogy, so I, I think I, sh- I should begin there, because I wanted to look at the sorry as a metaphor for talking about stories from, I suppose, the South Asian diaspora, really, throughout the generations and across boundaries, all boundaries of geography, but also gender. So I started with Husari Now, which was my one-woman show, and in a way it was the... Who doesn't love a pun? (laughs) Exactly. But it really was about Husari Now, because I started from the standpoint that the sari wasn't something that was a simple, iconic garment for me. It was incredibly complicated. And I think that that was what I wanted to examine, that for a lot of uh, second, third generation South Asian women from... Um, not you know, even in, in in the subcontinent, but outside of the subcontinent, we we had a very complicated relationship with the sari. It was representing patriarchy. Yeah, it's iconic, but at the same time, it's got that that frisson of okay, your whole entire sexuality and your purpose in life is kind of wound round these this piece of fabric. This is what a sari is—a strip of cloth. As a white working class woman from Wigan, I know very little about the sari. Could you tell us a tiny bit more about the importance of it? Right. It's a millennia-old garment, and it's a drape. It's a garment that was meant for draping, and therefore it was originally meant for both men and women. It didn't, it wasn't exactly, it wasn't, this is a part of the research that I found most fascinating because it became particular to women, I think, more recently. And I think it's it's in the hundreds of years rather than thousands of years. So I liken it to the toga, possibly, you know, with with the Romans. And the higher up you are in in the hierarchy of class, you probably wore it with jewelry and all of those things. And, you know, men and women 
both wore, you know, these highly decorated, colourful and it was a drape. It was the way in which you draped it. Over the centuries, I think that it became more identified as a feminine garment and also linked to the idea of mystique, you know, this whole mysterious South Asian, you know, woman, femininity. And it, it sort of got wound up in a very, very complicated area of um, of uh, sex- expressing your sexuality, I think. And also, it's in ritual. It's tied up with ritual. It's tied up with a lot of religious iconography. So I think that what I wanted to examine with part two of the Sari trilogy, this play, Handlooms, is the whole male aspect of it. I, I first started with me being a very young girl being fascinated by sari shops, especially in India, but also in Malaysia where I grew up. It was always a man selling a sari to a group of women who he was not related to, but who had a kind of conversation with them that was hugely intimate, slightly, you know, in the lines of innuendo and, you know, kind of slightly sexier, actually. Like, oh, Mrs. Sharma, you know, this color would look beautiful against your skin. So he'll he'll probably even touch her shoulder and, and put the put the uh, a piece of the, the, the material on her. And this kind of intimate language and uh, sensuous language isn't something that is acceptable in other areas of social uh, you interaction. You very much away from male touch and the male gaze and absolutely. chat, right? Absolutely, and this is completely the man is at the heart of designing the sari, selling it, the business of it, going to auctions to buy the sari. So, in a way, Alanka, in the middle of Curry Mile in Manchester, is probably one of the last bastions of this kind of you know, negotiation between sari seller and clientele, because as you can see in the, you know, this is why this show is going to be incredibly exciting, because you're going to be immersed in a very traditional sari shop where you actually have a stage area. It's hugely theatrical. I mean, so the language is not just intimate, it's hugely theatrical, because Dilip, who owns the shop, he will stand on one of those stage areas. You know, you actually have a stage area mm-hmm. with with clients who sit in highly elaborate on eight chairs. It reminds me of tea. a bridal shop. Absolutely. Probably that. And also it has a boudoir aspect to it where there's a lot of storytelling. There's a lot of, you know, I mean, if you imagine a young bride coming at the most vulnerable stage of her life where, you know, whole life is in front of her and she has to kind of trust this man to sort of choose, you know, help her choose her her sari for, you know, her trousseau. That's going to be like a really significant part of her life. So I guess that fascinated me. That aspect of it fascinated me. But also, what fascinated me with the with the research is the idea that uh, that men wore saris and some festivals and some traditional religious ceremonies like Navaratri in India uh, is celebrated by men but when they dress up so that they identify with the goddess energy they dress as women and their wives help them with their makeup and so they embody the feminine energy in the nine days that celebrates the goddess power let's say someone is so mesmerized by the sensuality of the sari by the fabric by the way it's weaved and, and made that he didn't find it unusual or he didn't regard it as something uh, subversive to actually put on a sari. 
And this is the area that I find most fascinating by my main character that I've written. It didn't set, I didn't set out to write that, but that was what evolved. We're, just to let the listeners know that Ronnie and I are already trying to capture the intimacy of the show by sitting quite huddled together in the changing <laughs> room. Yes. In a beautiful sari shop, which is where it's Alanka's. I can't say it. Say it for me. Alanka. I keep wanting to say Alanka's, and that isn't what we're. What which we're means doing. embellish. Oh. Mm, which means uh, jewelry and embellish yourself with jewelry and beauty. So um, in, in Tamil, which is the language I speak, Alankaram is to embellish your yourself with in, in jewelry and beauty and, and you know. Perfume. It sounds much mm. nicer when you say it. So when I try and say it, <laughs> you yourself have quite a complicated relationship with the sari, don't you? Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about? Yes. That? So imagine a eleven-year-old girl who was a bit of a tomboy in shorts and t-shirts in Malaysia, tropical Malaysia, and almost overnight, you know, the big change in your life, and you start to menstruate, and you're kept in the back room of your house. I mean, from a very modern, contemporary highly educated household who are quite liberal-minded. This is the one area in my life that I found that my parents were suddenly alien to me. They kind of said, well, okay, now you've come off age. And off age meant these incredible responsibilities that was in the area of, okay, now you're a woman and therefore the shame of the family or the honour of the family is in your shoulders. Something in language that I would never have associated with my parents was suddenly emanating from their mouths. And I think, yeah, it was quite an extraordinary thing. So I associate that very challenging time for me, for an 11-year-old, with the sari because, of course, there's a ceremony that they perform, which I think thousands of years ago, it was the first time the girl was kind of launched into society, a bit like a so you know, cotillion, yeah, a bit of a debutante, yeah. I mean, it's that kind of thing. You're okay. ready for marriage, you're ready for... At 11? At 11, at, you know, because you're, you're ready to be a mother. I mean, in the old days, that would be the time that they would arrange the marriage so that when you're 18, this is the boy you're going to marry. Okay. So that is the time that they will say, the families will decide and give you gold. Now, even though it was the 20th century at that time for me, I still found that incredibly disturbing. You know, because I thought, okay, this is something that I couldn't make sense of at that time. But I associated with the scratchy, itchy sari that kind of enveloped me in in all of this. Of course, now I can talk about it in metaphorical terms. At that point, as an 11-year-old, it was a deeply uncomfortable feeling. Imagine you just wanted to back away from it. I wanted to back away. I thought, thought, this is really strange because suddenly my uncles and aunties were looking at me slightly differently. It could be, you know, as an adult now, I'm looking back and maybe you know, revisiting that moment. But I know that quite clearly it was the sari that kind of really drew me backwards in time. And I suppose that's that's why I had a very uncomfortable relationship with it. And I refused to wear it for a long time. How did that go down with your parents? Well, they were very adamant sometimes. I mean, we had big, big fights over. Because uh, in my family, uh, especially in certain rituals, you've got to wear the sari. There was just no way you could attend or be participate in a ritual which is like maybe, you know, something really important. They'll say something like, okay, you're sitting for your A-levels. You've got to go through these prayers. It's offering to Ganesha, who will remove all the obstacles for your exams, and it'll give you a smooth, you know, (laughs) process in which you will now pass with flying colors. You've got to participate in this uh, ritual to Lord Ganesha. And so the sari. Well, I came from a pretty traditional 
family. I mean, traditional in the sense that religion was there in the ether, but we dipped in and out of it. Okay. So whenever you, it's a bit like my when you found, yeah, exactly. I think it's it's yeah. for most of us. I mean, we kind of dip in and out of it because it's kind of gives your life a bit of structure, so mm-hmm. you know that okay, this this particular festival is coming up, and this is what we're going to do, and it gave us a sense of okay. And then I suppose for the for my grandparents, it was a way, it was a connection to the homeland, because when you are a child of the diaspora, you you look for these things, which is what the story is also about. You know, um, this trilogy of plays that I've written is really also the longing that a lot of migrant communities because Rasa my company and my work has always been involved in because I'm a migrant several times over I always am interested in migrant cultures and what how we make sense of the world that we find ourselves in how we adapt to the multiplicity of identities sometimes that we have to negotiate and I think that is very much part of this the story it's a migrant story I mean Alanka itself is a migrant story, Dilip and his family come from Gujarat originally, mm-hmm. but they they grew up in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. This is the whole trajectory of how a sari shop can actually exemplify a lot of the complexities of people's lives when you leave one's homeland and you have, in fact, in this case, two homelands, much like my uh, biography. So my homeland is both Malaysia Sri Lanka, but also now Britain. So the continuity is that of the saris. So I, I look for it as a metaphor f- to talk about, you know, a, 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 a whole range of maybe complicated emotions and longing and memories attached to something that's quite, you know, just, a, just something you wear, put on for a wedding or something. I suppose it's like when you have a certain smell that takes you back or mm. a taste that takes you back. Do you wear the sari by choice now? Yes, I do. So I learned eventually to understand that so much of that is 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 attached to my identity. And when your identity is threatened, i.e. when I came here, you know, in a sense, you've got to explain yourself. I mean, when you see me, the first thing is the skin color, isn't it? And people are, are slightly... You know, not sure. Okay, she she might be the South Asian, maybe. But the idea that possibly I'm also Southeast Asian and I speak certain languages that that are not spoken here by certain, you know, by, by even South Asians. So there were things that al- already made me other. <laughs> We've got a noisy change here. <laughs> <laughs> that already made me other. That I I just found that maybe I could put on the sari but with uh, uh, in my own terms I think that was the that was the key for me that it was it was an extension of my own power as a woman Um, I'm a large woman which is why we are are huddled in this (laughs) (laughs) Ricky is very tiny but I'm I'm large and and we're we're huddled in a changing room (laughs) and um, uh, fully clothed I have to add (laughs) (laughs) I found that this was the one size fits all that's it it's a long scarf it's six yards and it it was exactly so it's it's a drape it's a way of draping it around you that I found highly sensuous so I I kind of reinvented for myself a way of looking at the sari without all the other complicated you know associations with it so a garment that started off to you is very uncomfortable has become a source of comfort a source of comfort and power and you know empowerment yeah absolutely and, a, and an extension of my identity or, or rather one of my identities and in the, in the fact that now that people 
associate me with. Do you think there's been a, a cultural shift, not just a personal shift? There's been a cultural shift away from the sari. I think that's why I was interested in writing about it. Now, when I used to walk down this road, where Alanka is, which is the Winslow Road, Curry Mile, as it's known. Um, yeah, in Russia, in which the is where I the, used to go to college, oh, so yeah. it's very familiar to me as well. <laughs> and in the late 90s, I, you still used to see the, the you know women in, a, in saris. Absolutely, that's when I know? was here, and it exactly. was and, very and definitive of exactly. this area of Manchester. Mm-hmm. So women would wear it as an everyday garment. It wasn't a special, occasional garment. It was an everyday where they did their chores. You could see women on a motorbike in saris. Always with trainers riding. or flip Always with trainers. <laughs> Yes, yes, <laughs> and heavy winter coats. Yeah, heavy winter coats. But you have this lovely, you know, something quite dazzling peeping out of this heavy, <laughs> you know, black winter coat. Over time, I realised that it was missing. It had gone into the closet, as it were, you know? Yeah. And I think second and third generation, the millennials, who I hope will come and see the show, will notice that they themselves have a complicated relationship with the sari and and that, you know, they, they, A, they don't know how to drape the... Drape the sari on themselves they find it deeply uncomfortable because it's more exposing than a bikini I have to say you see a lots lot of, of side flesh exactly because right? there's no knots or anything no and it's and it's yeah you feel quite vulnerable and it's hard to switch that and, and in, in a way I did feel very vulnerable ages ago and now I kind of feel quite powerful so tell us when we can see handlooms because it's on in Manchester and Leicester, right? Yes, it will happen here in Alanka in March, tenth of March till the twenty fourth. Leicester is Anoki, <laughs> Anoki on on Belgrave Road. So Anoki is run by Karan, who is the nephew of Dilip. So he, this is a proper migrant story as well because even the choice of the shops they are related to each other. <laughs> so and where can people find out more about you? Do you have a website? Yes www.rasatheatre.co.uk Delve into your back catalogue. Delve into my back catalogue, exactly. Possibly in a tiny changing room. (laughs) Rani, thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, pleasure. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we wonder why we only get to believe in sport as if it was some kind of mythical creature as opposed to just friggin' well do it like the goddamned man. Yes, it's time to talk all things women's sport. Cher believed in life after love, Westlife believed in angels and R. Kelly believed he could fly and potentially some other things but you know we'll leave it there for now this week women believe in football yes that's right england women's football team are currently competing in the she believes cup um, and that is a tournament between them the usa germany and france having beaten france and tied two all with germany england will now play the usa on thursday international women's day see what they did there and they can win the whole tournament if they manage to beat them Now, I'm not going to dwell too much on the fact that the name of the tournament makes it sound like some kind of sanitary hygiene product, but look, it's on the telly and everything via the BBC red button, just FYI, and um, it's even getting a bit of attention in the press. National treasure and darling of the MLS, David Beckham, swung by to offer his support to the birds and his old teammate, Phil. Hey, ladies, I guess you're just doing some ironing roundabout right now. Uh, Neville, who recently took over as the manager of the team. Now... 
Obviously, we'd all have liked a woman to get that job, and I'd have liked it to be Emma Hayes. There, I said it. But it's something that we can take from it, which is that a name like Phil Neville does bring a bit of attention to the team, and as ever with women's sport, attention is sorely needed. Meanwhile, I read a fascinating article last week about how the Football Association are working on a marketing strategy to make football the go-to sport for young girls, capitalising on what is currently a sort of family crowd at the game. So there's a lot of stuff that the FA gets very badly wrong. Yes, Martin, your comments comparing Nazi swastikas to the Star of David were in poor taste. How do you have a job? How does he have a job? It's like he's laughing at us all. But anyway, I digress as ever. So on this count, and to be clear, that's on their marketing strategy, not on the whole Nazi thing. They're succeeding. So, you know, credit where it's due. And it is not that often I will give any credit to the Football Association. Anyway, to segue neatly into a sport that isn't really succeeding so well and... um, and that's not really their fault. It's one we've chatted about before on this podcast. Um, it was reported last week that Sports Minister Tracy Crouch, because yes, indeed, they did give a woman that job, well done the Tories, um, is set to hold what the Times called an emergency summit this week. And that's to address a £1 million funding shortfall threatening withdrawal of the British men's and women's senior basketball teams from international competition. Now, To be clear, this is an absolute travesty. And again, we really, really, really need to rethink our approach to sports funding, which is, when I say our approach to sports funding, of course, I mean UK sports no win, no fee policy, as I like to call it. I don't want to do other sports down in order to big another one up. Uh, I don't think that's in anyone's interest at all. And I had a lovely, lovely time watching the Winter Olympics. I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of kids who watched it and are inspired to get into sport after it. But we do have to talk about inclusion because how many of those sports are accessible enough to a broad enough spectrum of people? So basketball, you just need a ball and you need a court. And in a lot of places, courts are just in parks and they're free to use. You can't say the same thing of curling or skiing or any of that other mad shit we saw. And I'm not suggesting we don't fund those sports too, but it is criminal that we don't see the potential of a sport like basketball to improve sports participation and also to become sustainable in its own right. I don't think, you know, obviously some work needs to go in, but I I just think it totally has that potential and I can't understand why we're not trying to grow it. Also, while we're on the funding subject we should probably mention cycling which is a huge beneficiary of uk sports funding and a massive success story in british sport really as a result of that so this week a culture media and sports select committee report into combating doping which has been published has found that sir bradley wiggins and team sky headed up by former british cycling chief sir dave brailsford crossed the ethical line, those are their words, not mine, in their use of performance-enhancing drugs administered under therapeutic use exemptions. So that's a bit awkward. Team Sky and Wiggins have denied all of the allegations against them, but it's an angle that we really should think about in terms of that no-medal-no-money policy in light of some of the findings. That's all for me this week, and I'll be back again next week with more women's sports. But in the meantime, fancy a chat? about sport predominantly but like sometimes I just like to tweet about my sink and stuff um that's not a euphemism I mean like the actual sink in my kitchen anyway I digress 
you can get in touch with me on Twitter where I am at Inspiragen. More sports news next week, but also on Thursday you can hear a little interview for recorded for International Women's Day between myself and uh, England rugby captain Sarah Hunter. So I strongly recommend you keep your ears very much peeled for that. And that's coming on Thursday. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week, I watched 2016's Moana. Sorry, what? What? I've never heard of it. Really not? Yeah. Blimey. Okay, well, no, I know that I've made a double liar of myself because firstly, we were actually going to have a week off Dunleavy Does Disney because, and here's a peek behind the standard issue curtain, we actually sometimes record these, a few of these in advance in case we're super busy one week. You are thrown out of the magician circle. <laughs> I know. And secondly, because I'd been led to believe that Moana was very good and I had said I was going to hold on to it so that I had something to look forward to while I was ploughing through all those other Disney films that nobody even remembers. But what happened was my aunt was at my house and she said, what Disney are you watching this weekend? And I, said, and I said, none. And she did a little sad face because she works in a school and she said all she's heard for about a year was kids singing things from Moana and she wanted an excuse to watch and see what all the fuss was about. So I watched it. Sorry. Now I'm guessing neither of you. Mickey's not even heard of it. Well, is it spelled M-O-A-N-A? Yeah, it is. I think I thought it was called Mona. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Mona. Yeah. Um, so I... no, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. I've seen a song from it because my mate's kids go crazy for it. And I'm guessing they that'll be how far it. I'll go, which we will be talking about in a bit. Yeah, I mean, that's all I've got. It's more than I've got. Did you like it? Okay. So, actually, you know what? My mum was telling me the other day that people starting sentences with okay or so really gets on their nerves. And since I do it all the time, I can't work out whether that means she does or doesn't listen to our podcast. Or indeed like you. (laughs) Well, that too. Anyway, people like to recommend Disney films to me in person and on Twitter. And I have to say that the most recommended by a country mile has been Moana. So the bar was set pretty high. How high? Pretty high. But I also have to say that I actually loved it. Yay. Yay! This is like the fourth one that you've really loved. Yeah, Are you well, all right. Do you need to lie down? Well, of course I loved it. It has Jermaine Clement singing a song written by Lin Manuel Miranda and using his Bowie voice to oh, do no, it. I've seen that as well. Oh, I, I want to see that right now. Now, to give you an idea of how much that is in my wheelhouse, I've been living exclusively on toast-based cuisine for a fortnight because I spaffed hundreds of pounds on tickets for Flight of the Concord and Hamilton in the same week. That is true. I'm a beneficiary of the Hamilton bit of that. Yeah. Again, probably too much plot to do in any great detail, but here goes. Um, the film opens on a fish, fictional Polynesian island with an old lady telling a story about the goddess Tafiti. Hang on, an old lady? There's a woman in it already. There is. There is. is she a hag? She's an old lady. Tafiti bought life to the ocean using a special stone as her heart and as the source of her power. Then along comes a bloke to fuck it up, typically. A shape-shifting demigod and super sailor, Maui. He steals the heart to give to humanity and 
when he gives it to humanity, humanity will have the power of creation. But this backfires, big surprise. Tafiti disintegrates and Maui is attacked by a volcano monster, loses his fish hook, which is magic, and the heart, and they fall into the ocean and... And what's unleashed is a slow creeping death of the region. Who couldn't have seen that coming? Yeah, what a twat. (laughs) Now, as she tells this story, the toddlers, oh yeah, they start on the scary stories young here. They're either scared or bored, but one little girl, who it transpires is her granddaughter, is fucking loving it. That's Moana. And little toddler Moana toddles over to the sea, which after a thousand years gives up the stone heart or the heart stone. But then along comes Moana's overprotective dad and takes it away from her. Fucking Honestly, man. the men in this film. Oh, Fast forward an unspecified amount of time, which I think will make Moana about 16 or 17, and the creeping death has reached her island. All the fish are gone. All the coconuts have the potato blight or whatever the coconut equivalent of potato blight is. The coconut, coconut blight. Yeah. Moana's grandmother, who is now so old she's about to die of being old, reveals a secret to Moana, and that is that her wanderlust comes from the fact that her people were originally adventurers on the high seas, and that, in fact, the wily old lady took the heart back when the sea presented it all those years ago. So she gives it back to Moana, and she tells her that if she restores it to the goddess Tafiti, she can fix all the damage done by that Egypt Maui. And so that's the basic premise. I'm fairly confused. There's nothing basic about that premise. (laughs) Exactly. Moana sets off in a boat. Mm -hmm. to restore the heart to the goddess. That's the long and short of it. She encounters Maui himself, and together they fight off these waterworld-looking coconut pirates. They retrieve the hook from some sort of Liberace crab covered in jewels. And I'm going to stop there because spoilers. So why is this film so good? I've written a list. Okay. Okay. You know, we like a list. Number one, it's about strong women. So, you know, applause. Hey. Secondly, it's got some terrific performances. First up, 14-year-old at the time, Aulihi Cravalho, who is absolutely cracking as the eponymous hero, but also Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yeah. Oh, you've got to love The Rock. Well, as, if you could smell what he was cooking, though. Yeah, he is the demigod Maui, and Jermaine Clement as the smog-like crab. They are both terrific. The, the Liberace crab. The Liberace yeah. crab, yeah. He is menacing as fuck as well, because yeah. I have seen that song. Which brings me to the third point, which is that it's actually funny. You know, it's a film that's funny. It's got jokes in it, and they are funny jokes. Moana's sidekick in particular, it's got a good sidekick. Now that's almost unheard of. It's the sort of boss-eyed chicken who is, it looks like he's recently sustained a head injury. The brilliant Alan Tudyk gets credit for the voice performance, but it is actually just a series of chicken noises, basically. Yeah. He has to have food put directly in front of him because he just pecks. And sometimes, unless it's in front of him, he just eats what's in front of him, which is stones and things. Do you think Disney was trying to make it up to the chicken community after the horror that was Chicken Chicken Little? Little. It could be. Fourthly, the animation is terrific. You know, from the ripples on the sea to Maui, he has these tattoos which move Mm. like a comic strip, which is really good. And it's got a terrific end. The denouement, which Moana herself is entirely responsible for, and in which she actually gets to achieve all the things that she sings about in the first act. Which brings me to Mr. Miranda, who has absolutely pulled a musical blinder here. Probably the best way to demonstrate that is if we talk about the film's I Want song. What I Want song is? It's pretty self-explanatory. Is that the one with The Rock? 
No, no, no. I want song is is a, is a term for a song that happens in a musical. It usually happens in the first act, and it's the song in which the protagonist generally oh. sings about what their dreams so are. So, like in the Little Mermaid, it's I want to be where the people are. Etc. Well, that that's precisely it. Yeah. So it's become very. It's it's in it's in all musicals. It's character building rather than plot building. It's in all musicals, but in Disney, it's like a proper speciality. Mm-hmm. Almost every Disney heroine has one. Now, Miranda wrote a song which he called More, and when it was recorded, he decided it wasn't up to scratch. So apparently he went home to his parents' house in Puerto Rico, locked himself in his childhood bedroom, and tried to remember what it was like to be torn between being stuck on an island that you were desperate to leave and the fear of leaving that island. And the result is the song that you probably, was the one you've heard, is called How Far I'll Go. It's the song that my auntie says all the little girls sing in the playground. The one I saw was a banger with the rock. Oh, okay. No, that's it. That's not that. And it's probably actually, to be honest, I think it's the best I want song in a Disney film. Just full stop. Uh, Really, part of your world can just go fuck itself. Leave it. No, it really can't. There's a single line in it that says, see the line where the sky hits the sea, it calls me, which has more soul in it than all the songs in Frozen put together, to be honest. This is like musically lovely. So in answer to your question, I genuinely loved it. I think it's probably top of the list of Disney films I am most likely to watch again. Awesome. Like above Brave. Uh, yeah, because it's a bit more fun than, okay. than Brave. It's a bit, it's funny. I want to see Crabs. Look, look like Liberace singing songs in David Bout voices. That's true. I mean, there's no one out there that. who doesn't want that. What score are we giving it? I am going to give it five. What? Woo-hoo! Yeah. Is that, that's our first five, isn't no, it? No, Brave got five. Brave got five Did as it? well. Yeah, and I think okay. The Rescuer's got five as well. Oh, so five what? I'm going to give, give it five well-timed people's eyebrows out of five. Hey. That's all from us this week. Well, I say it's all from us. It's not. There's loads more coming, actually. On Thursday, tomorrow, if you're listening on Wednesday, it is indeed International Women's Day, the day where we celebrate birds across the land and indeed the globe and the fantastic contributions and just general awesomeness of them. So we've got a bunch of special International Women's Day podcasts coming up for you. Uh, some fantastic interviews that we've done. So we had a chat with Aisha Hazarika, a former political advisor turned stand-up comedian. She is amazing. Uh, me and Hannah met up with Laura Bates of Everyday Sexism, also amazing. Mick and Han also had a little chat with a Cambridge academic about Millicent Fawcett. And I caught up with England rugby captain Sarah Hunter to talk about women's sport. All of that is coming for you this week, as well as on Sunday, which is Mother's Day, we have got a treat for you by way of Molly Sheridan, who you, will, you have heard on this podcast before, talking about her excellent perfume company, Reek, which she runs with her mum, Sarah. And they are they have done a lovely little interview for us about what it's like being a mother and daughter business partnership and it's excellent and and funny and just lovely, lovely stuff. So again, yeah, keep your ears peeled for that on Sunday. And we'll also be giving you the opportunity to win a bottle of their perfume for your mum or just for yourself, if you like. Um, maybe don't tell your mum that. 
Next week, we've got another excellent, excellent podzine for you. We've got Helen Wormsley-Johnson talking about a book she has written called Look What You Made Me Do, which is about domestic abuse. We have got Dr. Terry Simpkin from Anglia Ruskin University chatting about imposter syndrome. And we have got the very brilliant Lara Spirit from Our Future, Our Choice talking about kicking this Brexit shit to the curb, ma'am. We hope you've had a lovely time today. We hope you have an excellent International Women's Day and a wonderful Mother's Day too, either with your mum or with your kids or whatever the crap you're doing. Please do rate and review us on iTunes. It's ever so helpful if you just say we're excellent rather than we're shit. Um, And obviously we are excellent, so it's not going to be a lie. And also just tell your mates if you like us. Just just give them a little shout. Say, oh, do you know what? That's standard issue podcast. It's bloody lovely, isn't it? Also, you can find tickets for all of our upcoming shows on Sarah's website, which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. We've just made a bunch of announcements and we've got a fuck ton more to come. You can find us on Twitter at Standard Issue UK, on Facebook and indeed on Instagram because we are down with the kids. And yeah, you can engage with us via those channels should you wish to. Also, another thing coming up, we've got a playlist for you because we started doing those on Spotify. Isn't that nice of us? You can listen to our playlist, which is in honour of Rani Morthy's piece on saris today. And it's about clothes, isn't it? And I managed to finally get ASAP Rocky into this podcast. Um, so I'm delighted. And yeah, you can have a little listen. Guess who picked what? Uh, it would be pretty obvious, probably. That's all from me, because this has gone on for just an impossibly long amount of time. All that remains for me to say is, indeed, stay frosty, champs. Standard Issue for all women.